This is the Libertarian Podcast at the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Longtime listeners know that Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Richard, today I want to ask you about some perhaps excessive moves from the political left and the political right. So let's start on the left, because as you pointed out in your column this week, the existence of billionaires makes some people uncomfortable. Uh, you noted that the New York Times Magazine dedicated a bunch of print to uh, the idea that, well, there might be too many of them. And I, I like the quote that you, that you highlighted, uh, which was, their numbers are out of control and the rest of us are subject to their whims. Now, President Biden's out there proposing a billionaire's tax. Democrats control the House, the Senate, and the presidency. How much should I worry about billionaires growing in number? I mean, how powerful are they really? I mean, worrying about this is a social matter. My attitude has always been exactly the same, the more the merrier. Uh, There's a kind of a deep, important theorem here as to how sort of classical liberals like myself look at wealth differentials and how people on the left do. My view about this is you start with an individual distribution, and in many cases, it will be quite malapportioned. And indeed, it generally is the case as you start allowing people to play roles in the marketplace, uh, the spreads that will observe, that you'll observe will actually get larger, not small. Uh, but the thing to remember under these circumstances, even those people who grow the least under these situations actually grow. And so what you're trying to do under this world is to create a situation in which, as a market matter, you create Pareto improvements where everybody gets better off than they were before, and you don't worry much about the differences when it comes to public policy. Where you worry about it comes to private policies with charitable gifts and various kinds of behavior. And most of the people who earn a huge amount of money in the marketplace are all too happy to give it away in one form or another in a series of collateral transactions. So I always like to say, who is, and then you put the name down there, who is Rockefeller University? It's John D. Who is Stanford? It's Leland Stanford University. Who is Barnard? Mr. Chester Barnard, and so forth. Who is Johns Hopkins? Well, he's a man. And so what happens is the way in which the rest of us prosper directly is there is massive redistribution because of the diminishing marginal utility of wealth. There is no way that anybody who has a billion dollar consume even a small fraction of that sum. Uh, they could buy houses, but those are consumed adorables. How many bottles of wine can you drink a day in order to spend $2 million a day or something like that? Just doesn't work. So what you're trying to do is essentially keep that pie going and rely on these two mechanisms to keep things alive. What about politics? Well, it turns out, as is perfectly evident with the billionaires tax, if these guys can do everything they want, why does this tax even see the light of day? And if you look at any of the expenditure figures, they all take the same kind of form. Uh, The top 1% of the population pays 20% of the overall taxes or something like that. And these ratios take place because these people are isolated. It's a democratic situation done by vote. It's a situation in which there are very few, if any, constitutional constraints on the activity that takes place. So these people who have us at their whim, it turns out, are themselves vulnerable precisely because they have large amounts of money. 
But then you try to figure out what the egalitarians want to do. They want to do the following, which is to narrow the gap in wealth from the very rich to the very poor. Well, there are two ways in which this could be done, either alone in combination. One is to lower the top and the other is to raise the bottom. It turns out that if you actually look at the situation, it's a lot easier to lower the top than it is to raise the bottom. Because in order to raise the bottom, you have to have some kind of productivity that's going to take place. And if you start to constantly tax the top, what will happen is there'll be some degree of redistribution through the tax system, but there'll be a corresponding reduction with respect to various kinds of investment. The reduced investment will lead to reductions in wages for people who desperately need the improvement. The Wall Street Journal recently had a piece about what were the effects of the 2017 tax law, and the bluebirds were wrong. It turns out if you lower tax rates, you raise revenues, and that allows you to raise time for everybody who's in the system. So the billionaire kind of thing is just a kind of a demagogic type situation. And in my own life, I'm happy to say I know a number of billionaires. Um, And what I think they do is they put on their pants one leg at a time. Now, when they sit down to dinner, they order a course just like I do. And then they may retreat to their 300-foot yacht. But it certainly is not something which bothers me when I start to interact with them. I think in general, envy is a terrible emotion um, when it comes to thinking about wealth and haughtiness is a terrible emotion when you start to think about hell. I think what you do is you try to do the best by everybody else in a way that's decent, sensible, and even compassionate and leave all the political rhetoric on one side. But the New York Times likes to inflame these kinds of sentiments and it publishes these articles, many of which are wrong and others of which are downright silly. All right, two quick follow-ups. Here's the first one. I'm still trying to figure out what the measurable harm of having, well, forget even just billionaires around. I mean, this debate is about, uh, I guess it's the acceptance that income inequality and wealth inequality are bad things. We need to reduce them. But if we're going to take money from people and give it to other people because we just want to lower that gap, what's the harm? What's the actual problem with having a bunch of wealthy people running around? Well, let's go through the traditional forms of harm and see if any of them are covered. The first thing is whether or not somebody who's likely to be rich is going to engage in the use of force against other individuals in order to extract wealth. Well, I'm sure there are the odd gangster or two out there, but most of these people have either inherited wealth from somebody who made it or have made it themselves. And so, in effect, what happens is they often supply private police forces, and those private police forces to protect not only themselves, but people with lesser means who live in the same kind of an area. So you don't have that. Well, the second kind of harm is economic harm. And that's the question about whether or not they engage in various kinds of monopolistic practices, which can sort of roughly speaking, reduce output and raise prices. Well, there certainly may be some behavior that takes that form. But at that particular point, you're not worried about wealth, you're worried about monopoly. And if it turns out there's a relatively poor person who has a very powerful monopoly position, the antitrust laws ought to apply to that person just as it does to a rich person. If you look at these particular articles, none of them are concerned with the possibility that there's an antitrust violation. Basically, all of them leave untouched the question of whether or not the wealth was unlawfully or improperly acquired. So you don't have that kind of situation. 
Third, of course, is the question about political influence and the silent way that it gets done. If you look at the outputs, it turns out if these people are insidious, they're incredibly inept at being insidious because given the structures that exist today, all wealth transfer goes from the rich to the poor. And so now if you're going to try to say what we want to do is, well, what? We want to tax the rich. Do we really want to put them out of business because there's so many people who depend upon the transfer income? Do we want to lower this so that they can hire fewer people, build fewer houses, and all the rest of that stuff? What gains it to us? The answer is really none. What's happening here is is a kind of envy. And what you're trying to do is to stoke up the machine so you can put your people into position. And then what they will do is engage in various kinds of projects, which in many cases will be highly destructive about the way things run. And if you start looking at the Biden administration, it's a calamity list of things that ought never to be attempted. They're way over their heels, uh, head over heels when it comes to climate change and environment. Uh, Their recent rules with respect to NEPA or uh, the National Environmental Policy Act are a disaster. Their anti-monopoly inquiry with respect to the FTC is a complete mistake. Their views on labor policy are unbelievable. Uh, Their ability to deal effectively with international relationships, whether it be military or political, seem to be non-existent. And if what they're trying to do is to rally support for that, uh, then I think what we ought to do is to have more billionaires, and my hope would be that some of them would do something about it. There is the capricious case of Elon Musk. Evidently, he could raise the money. I'm not surprised about that. And if he starts to control Twitter, as he hopes to do, it may well be an absolutely open platform that is not going to be subject to the kind of disinformation constraints that are so popular today in left-wing circles. Uh, That is, you don't see much defense of freedom of speech. Uh, What you do is you see freedom of speech for us and no freedom of speech for the oligarch, a term that you're using relating back to ancient Greece in the effort of trying to say that they have some degree of market power. Uh, But what happens is they have technical excellence and so forth. And if there were a single reference in the New York Times article to any of the pie innovations that had been made by some of the people on that list or by their inheritances, I would start to say, well, then I at least see a balance. But what they do is they treat mana falling from heaven, and it somehow the falls only on these random individuals who have nothing to show for why it's their better. And it's an extremely effective strategy to make it appear that every billionaire has got his gains through windfalls and good luck, and none of it through achievement, excellence, determination, or all the things that are normally needed to make somebody successful, and to bring along with you everybody who's part of your team. So this is a blind, one-sided article. There is not somebody on the other side who's even allowed to speak in this thing, because what does the New York Times have? Certainly over its own editorial page, it has a very powerful monopoly, and it certainly exercises that power in a discriminatory fashion. All right, here's your second follow-up, and it's an impossible question, and so it can be quick. I love those kinds of questions. Good. I I had a professor who used to ask them, and it drove me crazy, but it really makes you think. Here's here's the question. What portion of the uber-wealthy in America, not the rich, I mean the wealthy in America, do you think earned their money fairly, and what portion do you think had ill-gotten gains through through rent-seeking? Well, you see, there's a third category, which is inheritance. And I treat inheritance as essentially a sequel of earning it promptly. I would say the fraction of people who have been able to get their wealth illegally, if you're talking about the class of individuals who have a billion dollars or more in assets, is a vanishingly tiny proportion of what's going on. In virtually all of these cases, you could see somebody who's launched a business many times in a garage. What they do is they then get venture capital funding. They then go public. And somehow or other, uh, they make money by selling 
things. And the thing to understand is the famous proposition by William Nordhaus, which is if you're talking about somebody who's innovation in, say, a copyright or in a patent space, what percentage of the gain goes to the innovator and what consent goes to the public at large? And the answer to that is certainly at the very least 90% goes to the public. And indeed, Nordhaus puts out a number which is at 98%. So if you, in fact, can leverage $50 a gain for everybody else but $2 that you put out yourself, what happens is this is the greatest wealth creation system in the world. But consumer surplus, that is the gain that people get above and beyond their cost of production, is systematically ignored. And so I think, in effect, this just makes the same point over and over again. You may not be rich in the sense that any of these other people are, but if you $100 bought you a rotary firm that wasn't, phone that wasn't much good anyhow, and your $100 now can buy you a fairly powerful computer, a desktop, this, that, or the other thing, what happens is your money, when adjusted for inflation, goes far, far more further than it did under the earlier system. But consumer surplus is not considered, and that's that's why it is most ordinary people are relatively content with their lot and situation, usually pretty pleased with their job, because they remember how the situation was otherwise. And if it turns out they've got any grievance, the grievance is not going to be towards the billionaires. It's going to be for people who block entry or otherwise tax them away. And those are going to be the very progressives who turn out to claim always and incorrectly that they are the protector of the little man. All right. Well, let's go from the progressives in the far left to over to the far right. Uh, I'm taking you to Florida, where Governor DeSantis is in quite a spat with Disney Corporation. Uh, this spat came about because of Disney's opposition. Well, when I say Disney, I mean people at Disney's opposition to Florida's Parental Rights and Education Act, which detractors call the "Don't Say Gay" bill. Um, it, in I guess in retaliation for uh, for Disney speaking out against this bill. Florida, the legislature and Governor DeSantis have threatened to and look like they may revoke Disney's independent special district access that they've had for 50 years. This is this is what allows Disney to have control over land use and infrastructure on its property. Yesterday, Richard, the the Florida Senate uh, voted to get rid of it. Um, It's been around for 50 years. Today, the House in Florida voted to to get rid of it um, sometime, I believe, in the next year. And it's over to, to Governor DeSantis's desk. Do you think it's appropriate for DeSantis in Florida to be going after a company because of its opposition to certain legislation? Well, going after is a vague term. I think it is perfectly appropriate to go after them in the sense to insist that you have distorted what we've done in the bill and that your own policy prescriptions on how it is that we want to educate under 10-year-old people uh, with respect to sexual arrangements is, in fact, utterly inappropriate. And I think they're 100% right on that. I would be stunned if any significant portion of the general Florida population of any political group or party was strongly in favor of a bill which wants to take kids in the age of innocence and have them try to contemplate the fact that they are, in effect, half male, half female, intersectional, or something of the sort. My own views about this is, as an intellectual matter, I think it's extremely important to recognize that sex is a predicate for reproduction, that these intermediate states are necessarily going to be unable to produce if it turns out they don't have the normal capacities. People's social identification doesn't matter, but if there's some kind of gender 
the transformative surgery. It means that they cannot do this. And the people, I think, who are worried about society would say, you know, the propagation of the species is something that we really ought to be concerned about. And dichotomous sex is the most insecure way to do it. I'm not trying to ban anybody from doing anything else. This is not an anti-libertarian screed, but it is when it comes to public education, I think something which the public has a right to determine for its schools, that means the parents. And so when I start seeing a particular corporation backing its own employees when they take fairly extreme positions, my answer is I would certainly want to argue with them. I will certainly want to make it very clear that I think that their prescriptions for education should not be there. It's very clear that when the state is the speaker, as it is in all of these cases, it doesn't have to have every voice thought. And indeed, if Florida were in the control of the left, I would think that they would pass the exact opposite bill, uh, which I as a parent would strongly oppose. Now, the question about collateral consequences, I don't like playing the blame game in that particular arrangement. Um, They put this particular situation into play because they thought it was a very wise idea to have uh, Disney and similar large companies bear the infrastructure cost in areas in which they were going to put up the superstructure. And the advantages of that is you could get seamless interaction between what takes place at both levels, and you reduce the burden from local government. So if that's the situation here, the question you have to ask is, has that particular logic changed for Gwizmi for anybody else? Well, I think the first thing is it has not changed. If anything, my guess is given the elaborate set of regulations that come out of zoning boards and everything else, this device, in fact, is more valuable today than it was 50 years ago. And it also, I think, is the case that in doing so allows Disney to prosper in other ways so they can bring more tourists into the community. I think it's perfectly appropriate for individual parents uh, to essentially recoil in horror at what Disney is doing and refuse to come uh, to Orlando or anywhere else. That's their prerogative under any circumstances, and it's surely going to be corrective. But I don't think the state should do this. And then when it does, it says, well, this is a general problem. We'll just start with Disney. What happens is this looks to be completely pretextual. And as being pretextual, I think, in effect, what it does is it points out something that conservatives should be extremely aware of, which is the danger of abusive legislation for collateral purposes, because the motive in this case is all too clear. If they had passed a general bill trying to deal with this problem in which Disney was only a part, you'd give them modest points. The reason they did not do it is if there are a thousand plus of these organizations, they are basically going to wreck the entire industry if they make this thing more general. Uh, So they don't want to do it that way. If they really think there's something that's going wrong, what they do is they put together investigative committees and private commissions and things of that sort to deal with the problem. If you're passing this in a rapid basis, you don't care about what's going on. And so I may well be, and I suspect Mr. DeSantis knows his population and his supporters better than I do, that this is going to play very well with people who are sharply opposed with the bill and who don't worry about the kinds of legal necessities that I do. Uh, my concern is I regard it past tense. Uh, DeSantis is a very strong presidential candidate. He's still a presidential candidate. It depends on how long this thing starts to go and what its ramifications are. Uh, But generally speaking, as a classical liberal, I think that you really are worried about the abuses of collateral government power, which seems to be in this case. So I'm on the side of saying whether he wins or loses a presidential or gubernatorial election, I'm strongly opposed to the way in which he tries to put this thing into place. And so would you have 
have to do is to draw the key distinction. You can be strongly in favor of his position with respect to this gender education bill. You can certainly attack everybody on the left for calling this statute a don't say gay bill, which is an absolutely fraudulent misdescription of what the bill turns out to say. But two wrongs don't make a right. And if they act like fools and you attack them for being fools, you don't become a fool yourself by putting in a set of proposals and restrictions that cannot be independently justified. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org every week. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Catch you next week. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.